Alright, so this is uh, episode 23 of Road to Surfdom's Stream of Consciousness, and uh, things have been really busy. Um, thank you all for uh, getting me through um, the uh, recent Begathon. Uh, my auctions kind of worked, uh, got half of it with the auction, and then um, I ultimately sold another one at the end. So. Um, Hopefully uh, this next month I won't have to do a begathon and I can do this with just the uh, auctions of the gentlemen's magazines. And um, I don't, I haven't been putting any of the information about this on the uh, YouTube channel. This is only on my Twitter um, because that's where you can bid and that's where it's happening. And it's not really technically part of stream of consciousness. Um, but tonight is kind of a special episode because uh, I'm celebrating the. Uh, first anniversary of the uh, movement license tweet which was the one that sort of got me started on getting a podcast together and um, becoming a full-time twitter person uh, expressly for the purposes of retweeting this particular tweet there's a lot of other stuff i do on twitter but this last year has been for the most part all my time has been spent retweeting with both tweets of this tweet, which is a censored tweet. They didn't take it down, but they did everything they could do to prevent it from being uh, read and seen and liked and retweeted and uh, bookmarked and etc. Like, you, you can't interact with this tweet. Um, <coughs> so, I guess I'm... I had plans of going through and finding all the really cool... Um, quote tweets and there have been so many really good quote tweets really interesting funny creative things and i just there's so many there's no way i could put them all in and, and you know partly because i don't want to be doing favoritism or most the most recent ones necessarily in a show about it um but there's just so many i mean some of the early ones were really good and people who devoted right from the beginning a lot of time to to doing series of you know fifty or a hundred memes about it and and a lot of people lost their accounts doing this so I feel like if I was going to do anybody I should start with those people that started in the beginning and I, I can't find those tweets I mean partly because they've either been deleted or the accounts have been suspended or Twitter is preventing you being able to search for them which they do to my tweets like you can't search for the t if you search for the text. In my tweets, in many cases, it won't show up. Uh, the tweet is there, it's just not showing up in the search. And a lot of times there's just no good way to search for it because it's just an image or something like that. Um, so there's no text you can search for. And, and they don't show me my quote tweets. They won't give me a list of all the actual quote tweets, so I can't even manually go through and find them. So uh, I, I did put up a tweet asking people if they knew about any cool ones from any of these the entire year and just put them you know in a reply on that tweet so that I can see it. And, and that's a good idea to do anyway so that there's a place that has a sort of collation of all the good creative quote tweets. Um, but in lieu of actually putting it together a video of them, which is just impossible for me to do, Possibly at all, but certainly not in the amount of time that I have here, which is not very much time. I'm just going to do an episode talking about what's been happening, you know, with regard to that tweet on Twitter and any other stuff that comes into my mind. And also just to uh, to toast all of you for helping and for, for seeing the light and, and really just for being there. So I got... Nice little bottle of bourbon here, and I will start with uh, 
a little bit of uh, Whiskavaha. Well, it's bourbon. It's not really Irish whiskey, but so slotcha. It's pretty good. I've developed a taste for bourbon. Um, usually I'm Irish whiskey and scotch drinker, but bourbon's really good. Good bourbon is really good. Bad bourbon is really bad. What the devil's up with that camera? So my cameras are behaving strangely. Uh, that one's going okay. I don't have the remote active on that one. How's my focus? And this is, uh, by the way, <clears throat> t-shirt that uh, <clears throat> was from my old radio station back in the 90s, WZBC. And Magnus Johnstone actually was uh, did a uh, Arab music show after my show on uh, ZBC on Sunday nights. He was an artist, and uh, it's just interesting because he he did this for the radio station. I, when I went to uh, Ireland and France, I gave these out, uh, and I came back with a little bunch of uh, CDs from Brittany and Ireland and Scotland and all over the place. Um, but it's weird, you know, in the, in the 90s, Baby and Bugs was, you know, the radio station was a weird electronic experimental music radio station, so, um, and it's the station I grew up listening to, that's what I grew up listening to, was experimental weird music. Um, so I'm uh, friendly to the weirdness. I, I think the weirdness is creative and good and, and, and cool, and ZBC is kind of the best in the world for that kind of stuff. If, if something is totally unsaleable, on any commercial radio station, but still good, uh, then ZBC would play it. And uh, so that's why I, uh, I, I was in a band, and uh, the band was, you know, semi-successful for a local band in Boston. And I got a lot of airplay for my song, so they invited me in for an interview, and they said, hey, uh, we don't have an Irish music show, but the band I did was kind of electronic Irish music. And I said, and they said, would you like to do a radio show? And I said, damn, yeah, absolutely. And so that's that's how I started my radio show in the, in the beginning. And I was only like 15 or 16 years old when this happened. Um, I didn't actually have a car to get to the radio station, and I, and I didn't have, if I get my times right, I think that's about right. Um, it was tricky in the very beginning, and I didn't really know very much about Irish music either. I, I, you know, I'd grow up grew up in an Irish family and we sang songs and stuff, but that's, you know, American Irish folk, what I call Irish folk music, not really traditional music, not really tunes or songs in Irish or anything like that. It's not that you can't have songs in English that are Irish songs, but there's a difference between sort of folksy uh, contemporary songs and traditional, you know, there's, it's, it's a kind of a difficult thing to qualify exactly what is traditional music because there's a lot of brand new traditional I am trying to do traditional music in electronic music format for instance and so I'm going to take traditional tunes and put them to crazy electronic weird sounds and, and instruments and in arrangements that are totally not traditional but I'm I think of it as traditional music because it's the tune right um, whereas there are songs that I'm going to do that are take the original lyrics from a contemporary folk Irish song and put it against electronic Irish music against electronic music and I won't consider that traditional music but but it is you know it's in the in the vein it's in the genre sort of kind of 
Um, I don't know. It's, it's something nobody else has done, and I've been trying to do it for 30 years. I started with doing it, and then I got the radio show. And, and honestly, when I started doing the radio show, I, I just kind of gave up on doing music for myself because this, the, the actual musicians in Irish traditional music, the players are phenomenal. Uh, the ones that I, I was in Boston, so I had access to all of the best musicians in the world. They were all here, or they would come here, come through town. And there was, uh, I was not the only Irish radio show in Boston. There have been others um, that were on the air longer than I was at the time and have since been on since. But they don't really, there's something about traditional music, you know, from a from a musical standpoint, from a sort of virtuosic, I was looking for the virtuosic performances of the best material. And in my mind, traditional music, what makes traditional music good is the fact that you've got this hundreds and hundreds of year long shit filter where a tune may have been written 400 years ago and it has evolved over time. It's maybe gotten faster, had some new parts added. Uh, people play it differently depending on where they come from. There's a Claire style and a Carey style and whatever. Um, but there is this core, this tune that is the traditional music, and only the best tunes survive. It's, it's kind of an, an analog for capitalism in a way. It, it, something will not endure unless it really merits endurance. Um, and you can try to force it. You can try to make new stuff, and if it lasts, it's good. But, but it will only last if if it's really good. Um, and these original tunes that... Um, I don't know why I'm going off on this about Irish music. Maybe it's because I'm starting to drink here. But uh, anyway, again, cheers to everybody. I really appreciate all the help. And um, I, I, do, I believe we're going to get through this. It's, um, it's not going to be easy. But um, we're only a year into this from, from that tweet. And I've been going through uh, my, my earlier tweets, which go all the way back, well, I mean, technically to 2016, but because I've been talking about totalitarianism and corporativism the whole time, and Hayek and all Ludwig von Mises and everything, um, I'm into Austrian econ. Um, I was really shocked that, you know, maybe it's because I know about totalitarianism specifically, um, but I was really shocked that there weren't more Austrian economists who said, yeah, this is, this is what happens, this is the beginning, I, you know. I, I hear you. I totally agree, because I was going back and I saw I found my one of the first tweets. It wasn't the first tweet, but it was the first very explicit tweet to call out what was happening as the beginning of totalitarianism, and that was August fifteenth, twenty twenty, which was just after the beginning of the the lockdowns, and I remember telling my brother at the time, I said, I'll, I'll, I'll lay my name on this. this. If we let them do this, they will not stop. And he was saying, no, 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 they'll, they'll, it'll, they're telling us it'll only be two weeks. And I said, they don't, no, they, they never, they never limit anything. It will just expand. And at the time, I was only vaguely aware of some of the stuff I've learned since. I don't think I even knew about the lockstep document, or maybe I had just discovered it. Um, and all of my previous information had been kind of scant and um, made from my limited exposure to conspiracy theory stuff, which I didn't necessarily deny, but I never really took to be, and again, it's, I didn't deny it, and I didn't say it wasn't real, and I took it seriously, but somehow I didn't, it just didn't add up, 
it, and I guess what it is is I didn't think there was anything I could do about it. So what was the point? I'm not going to stand out in the street corner with a sign that says the end is nigh and they're about to kill us because I didn't really have any proof. This is all just hearsay, and most of it is based on things like the you know silent weapons for quiet wars documents and other things that are just you, there's no real proof where that came from. Um, all you can do is point to all the examples, and there are myriad examples of consistency in government policy with this apparent desire to kill off most of the human race. So now we have our evidence. Now we have our proof. They have, they have openly declared war on the human race. And so we have to get ourselves out of this, and obviously government is not going to stop itself. And corporativism, once I, 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 I'm trying to clearly identify and describe what corporativism is because in the government of corporativism, the government form of corporativism, corporations are subsidiaries. They're like virtual departments or agencies of the government. They do what the government tells them and they get paid by the government. And their job is to enact these socioeconomic policies that government would otherwise, in a ostensibly um, representative republic, it would be illegal for the government to do these things. But when they surreptitiously enact corporativist policies in this way, they're able to do it. So I'm trying to make it clear that um, the people on the left who say the corporations are evil are totally right. Um, but they don't get it. They don't understand that they're part of the government. It's not that the corporations have taken over the government or are telling the government what they what, what the corporations want the government to do. That's not what's happening. That would be in in classical liberalism to us Austrian economists, what's called a regulatory capture. And although that is always a concern whenever you have government grow large enough to interfere and you have interventionism happening, which is, you know, there are a lot of, a lot of these simplifications that are appropriate, but they, they fail to, to integrate the whole idea. Um, Ludwig von Mises reduced it down to interventionism, which I think is a great way to say it. But, that doesn't really communicate the, the direness of our circumstances. Ayn Rand, you know, uh, would call it mixed economy. And mixed economy perfectly adequate way of describing the mixture of socialists and capitalist policies, but there aren't really any capitalist policies. Um, she was under the impression that, that these business leaders were shooting themselves in the foot and funding these terrible things because of moralism and whatever and, and altruism. And to some extent, of course, that's true. And she was analyzing. She was not an economist in itself. She admitted she was not an economist. Um, and she didn't really know, or maybe she was just reticent to admit that it was corporativism because, again, you have to remember, Ayn Rand came from the Soviet Union and her, her family had been, you know, devastated by communism and she saw America as the only and it was truly the only counter in the world to global communism which was aggressive and armed with nuclear weapons and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it would be very difficult to expect Ayn Rand to talk shit about America about this corporativist thing because A, she may not have known about it and if she did realize what it was you know, in as precise a way as I have come to understand it she may have felt like, well, so be it, that's a problem down the road. It's better than communism. I mean, that's what a lot of people think, is they think, well, you know, I'd rather have, you know, 
corporations in the government's pocket than have the government be totally in control of everybody overtly. At least they have to pretend that, that there's some private commerce going on. But, you know, do they even? Is there really any pretending going on anymore? I don't think so. This this is overt fascism. This is corporativism. This is totalitarian global corporativism. And it's affecting everybody. And it's, and, and it's bound into this ideology of Malthusian anti-humanism, which is, holds as an article of faith that there are too many people and we must cull most of them. And almost everybody, one of the things I'm trying to, con to, I think will help, I hope will help people to understand, is that we've all been programmed through what's called cybernetic social engineering. And that's this implementation of cybernetics, which is the creation of self-regulating systems that you know, resist change and growth and advancement. And usually they're about trying to design a system that will keep itself within parameters. The analogy is the, the steam engine regulator. Um, but cybernetic social engineering is specifically to program people to, you know, to, to sort of guide them towards ends that cybernetics wants them to reach. And, and I think that's pretty much the way it worked. Pretty uh, very successful. <coughs> and most people think that they arrived at their conclusions on their own as a result. So you ask somebody, you know, about climate change or the birth rate or you know, population size and whatever, and most people have this idea that the world is completely covered in people and they're all terrible people. And You know what I mean? Like, this is all programmed shit. They got this all from school and media. That None of them came to this conclusion on their own. And if you sit them down and you say, well, show me. Show me that where you live. And they say, well, it's not here where I live. I mean, I'm sure there's somebody in some city somewhere where it's really as shitty as they say. But those are cities, and they're few and far between. And even only parts of cities are as bad as, as the worst case scenario. Um, cities are, are crappy places. We're not. The world is not a city. The cities are these concentrations of of, not, of nonsense that are that are really, you know, kind of little laboratories for this, you know, cybernetics and and you know human management. And they want everybody to go into cities. That's one of the things about Agenda 21. The goal is to make most of the Earth uninhabited by humans, except, of course, the people who you know are authorized to go out and enjoy the, uh, the countryside. Everyone else is supposed to go into the cities and be surveilled and managed and and not use too much energy and not eat too much food, eat the bugs, et cetera, et cetera, don't have sex or at least don't have children. And I mean, this is evil. And, and people have this, uh, and a lot of people agree with it on principle because they think they've come to this conclusion on their own. They think that they've arrived at this conclusion that people are bad, and they haven't. They have been told this by government schools and by movies and books and TV shows and whatever, and their own kids or their parents or their siblings or whatever, their friends. I mean, it's the other thing about this is it's been a cool thing. You know, when, when I was growing up, the at least there were some people left who didn't buy into this bullshit. And so the younger kids, it was like, kind of cool to be nihilist and I'm sure that that's still the case and the, the nihilist kids who, who are doing it and think they're being cool think it's kind of rare or something I guess I don't know 
Um, they don't. Re- they don't seem to realize that everybody agrees with them. They are repeating exactly what the fuck the television just told them, and they think they're being punk rock. Well, I'm sorry. You know, killing off the human race because they suck and people are terrible and blah blah blah. That's not punk rock. That's government media. That's exactly what the government wants you to think and say. Um. So we've got to. We've got to stop this, and mass recall, as I've said, is the only thing that I know of, That I, and I've analyzed every possibility, every possible way, mechanism, mode of redress, and all of them have been specifically accounted for in the documentation that I have found between Lockstep and Agenda 21 and all the other stuff that, that's out there, and there's a lot. Um, and it's actually one of the one of the bright sides of this, one of the things I'm uh, that is... On, you know that, that benefits us is that even though so many people agree with this on an ideological level, they don't understand or or know that it's an actual active project that's underway. So most of these ideas have to be thought of ahead of time and then woven into the fabric of the false society and then activated. And so, if some if someone comes up with something they didn't anticipate, like mass recall, they don't really have a a way to deal with that. They they can't just like press the button and say you know broadcast to all to all Malthusian and humanists. There is a new thing that they just came up with called mass recall, and we're going to have to deal with this. And this is what you should do. They can't do that because they're not supposed to be killing off the human race. Most people don't believe that they're at war with the human race. So they can't just say, update to the war on the human race plan. We need to kill off all the people this way now because they're getting scared and they're seeing what we're up to. They can't do that. So we have an edge here. Uh, Mass recall will work. It's peaceful and legal. And they can't update their policies to deal with it. All they can do is run false flag operations. So... What, we, what I think most of us expect to happen is that there'll be some terrorist event, um, and they'll they'll say, "Well, that's it. You can't have people. You know, they just keep taking away civil rights. Civil, civil. Um, I hate that term, but you know, civil. They keep whittling away at, at free society, and everybody will be surveilled. And we already know I mean, that that." the major point of all this lockdown stuff, and they've admitted it, of course. There are plenty of examples where they admit this. It's in the policies. It's, they know it. Is The reason they've been doing the lockdowns and, and keeping people from in the social distancing thing is because they don't want people to talk to each other unmonitored in groups because that's how people exchange information and say, oh, geez, you know, I heard that too. I thought it was weird, but then this other person said, no, 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 it's cool. Don't worry about it. Uh, but, you know, if you're in a group of 12 people and, and 10 of them are like, no, dude, worry about it, then those two people who might have not worried about it are going to say, mm, okay. And that's what they're trying to prevent. So that's why you had this cops going to somebody's house because they had a dozen people over for a party. Um, and it wasn't that they were going to actually do that for every single party either. The major point of it was to get it on the news. Get it on the news that cops will come and break up your party if you have too many people in your house. That will discourage people from having get-togethers. That's the goal, right? They don't want to have to police every single house. They can't. Um, And then the secondary purpose of of broadcasting this on media is to provoke violence. 
So the, the, the key in the lockstep document is that they want something called pushback. Pushback is what they anticipate is what will happen when people finally get fed up and they say, no, no, you can't do this anymore, government. And so they, they call it random violence. And so what they're trying to do is provoke random violence, that is, people getting pissed off and getting into fights with cops and resisting arrest and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, having violence break out at protests. That's what they want. That's what they're trying to provoke. And so when the cops go on the air, I mean, in the very beginning, the way I took it was when the cops went on the air and they said, well, we're, we're, we're releasing the criminals from jail and we're going to start putting mothers in jail for bringing their toddlers to the park. I mean, and they would have, you know, whole episodes on the news about the cops going and arresting the woman with the toddler at the park. And it, even if it was kind of saying, well, this is bad, the point of that is to to terrorize, to make you think, as a mother, you can't bring your toddler to the park. And then also, on top of that, if this would make your blood boil, this would make it much more likely that you would be violent against the, the police if they tr showed up and tried to do something, right? That's what they want. And again, it's... It, it's of course, maybe the police want this too themselves because the police are always are, are bullies and they want violence. But again, the police are being used here. So, like, the police don't want, for instance, if everybody has machine guns and, and they, they tell the police to do something that will make people shoot the police with the machine guns, that's what they'll do. That will, that's what, if that's what the plan requires, right? It's not that they care about the lives of the police. Those police would die in that situation. Um, but that would be a useful tool because then you could say, oh, see, look at what they did to the police. Um, and so the police don't understand. I mean, yes, they're, they're bullies and they're violent and they're stupid, but they are also being used. Um, so this is why it's so difficult. Like, like even the worst of the of the offenders at the personal level, when you get to police and and even local bureaucrats, they don't really understand what they're doing. Um, they 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 know what they're doing is wrong, and they they might even personally enjoy being uh, sadists. But they don't get the big picture. They're not. They they don't think that they're working for the people who are going to kill off most of the human race. They don't. That's not what they're doing. That's not what they think they're doing. They don't, they they probably don't believe it if they've even ever heard anyone say it. So, this is why mass recall is the only way out of this. It's it's peaceful. It minimizes or completely eliminates the possibility of having any violent interactions at all. Because if you have all the townspeople peacefully showing up and taking everybody out of power, that's the end of it. There's no violence. Um, and to the extent that there's a risk that the, that, that the town officials will mass murder everybody in the town, of course that is always a risk, but it's a pretty low one. In a town, again, cities cities no cities are, are already lost but in a town you know your your town officials you many people know the police the police are neighbors they live in the town they have their kids you know over at somebody's house or whatever they're not going to mass murder everybody in the town they might be sadists and they might enjoy killing the occasional citizen for no reason but they're not going to open up with machine guns on thousands of people in the street um so so now, while we still can do it, we, we need to, to get out of this by conducting mass recall and removing the local powers that can enact these crazy policies. Um, 
because eventually they're going to replace town officials with military installations. When the when the full militarization comes, they'll just there won't be you can't do mass recall the way I'm suggesting. I mean, it's been over a year since I suggested this in the first place, a year and a half or more. We really should have done it back then. We can still do it, but if we wait for seven or eight more years, by that time there won't be any town officials anymore in the sense that you and I think of them right now. There'll, there'll be a colonel, and you know the army will show up, and there'll be soldiers at the grocery store with machine guns pointed at your head. This is how it happens. Um, so we, we can still do this. We can still get out of this. But time is a wasting, and people need to realize what's happening. And I think pointing out that eliminating most of the human race in this Malthusian anti-humanist's, you know, catastrophic event that they're trying to organize is is important for people to understand. Because I'm not sure people believe it. They, they don't. They can't think of a reason why they would need to do this, right? Well, there's your reason. So, anyway, so I, I guess I've been running my mouth here for, I guess, close to a half hour, hour. So, anyway, I guess that's it. But um, I just want to, I just want to thank everybody for, for what they've done with helping with the uh, tweet and getting it out there and so cheers again, uh, and and hopefully we'll we'll put together that uh, that tweet that has the collection of all the the cool quote tweets because I would like to put that together. Maybe I'll do another show later that integrates them into some kind of video. But there's just no way for me to do that right now. Um, so I don't know. One year. Let's hope it doesn't take another year for mass recall, but it might, you know, my, my original, I've been conservative, I mean, to, to some extent, in other ways, I've been kind of over the top, but for the most part, I've been very conservative in, in my, my predictions. And I had done a poll asking people who didn't believe that this is the beginning of a genocide, uh, how many people would need to die before they would say, huh, maybe there's something wrong. And the options were like 100 million a year. The options, I mean, I was referring to annual deaths, but the, I, the poll actually just said 100 million, 200 million, 500 million, billion, or more. And a lot of people said a billion or more people. So a lot of people said 15% of the population of the planet would need to die before they would admit that something might be wrong. So let's just work with that figure for now, and that's about one in seven or eight people. So by that point, somebody in everybody's family should die on average. Um, and that anecdotally does, it's about right. Like you would only really notice it when about that many people die. And you have to also remember that 50 to 60 million people normally die from all-cause mortality in, on, in the world annually. And this would require that number to triple. So we would need 150 to 180 million to die per year for the next eight years in order to reach one billion deaths. But that's what the, the Agenda 21, 2030 uh, agenda schedule requires, is a billion dead by 2030. And so 
as soon as we reach triple all-cause mortality, we'll know that the, the, the plan is operating on schedule and they're achieving the numbers of deaths that they want. And that's also the number that people have said will make them start to worry. So if, but that, would, that number won't be reached until 2030. So we have to get, we can't wait until 2030 for people to see the actual 1 million dead. And it will be much worse than that by that point. So we have to figure out some way to fix this situation and wake people up before it gets that bad. And so focusing on the annual all-cause mortality to, to show that the prediction will, will work out that way is, is, I think, the way to cut ahead of this problem. So once we start to see 150 million dead per year, which is three times the normal number, then we can say, look, we're on schedule. This is what's happening. Three times as many people are dying every year from, from all causes as normal. And the other key factor, specific thing that I refer to in this context is that uh, we know from uh, virology and epidemiology that if if you have a supposedly novel pathogen, and I'm just working with, with, again, the data that is supplied and the axioms that we all agree on already, um, there is questionable data, there's questionable, all sorts of questionable stuff about this. But the one thing that everybody agrees on is that in the case of the release of a novel pathogen, according to the epidemiologists, um, you have the highest numbers of deaths in the first year. And the reason for that is because immunologically, if it's a novel pathogen, people don't have an immunity to it, and therefore it's going to cause the largest amount of deaths. Now, as the pathogen mutates and is and the surviving mutation, because most mutations do not survive. They're, they're mutations that cause the thing to not work. Um, the mutations that do survive, that means that they're communicable to other people and then those people communicate it to other people. In order for that process to happen, it has to be less deadly. So if the, if the thing really kills you right away, it's actually not that effective um, in, in terms of a contagious you know, uh, pandemic because it will just kind of go away. It will kill, kill the people that it kills and nobody else will get it. So it's got to actually sort of attenuate its deadliness, trading off for contagiousness, and that's how you get these pandemics. Uh, but this process of a communicable disease becoming, keep propagating out to more and more people and getting less and less deadly is that more and more people become immune because if it's less deadly, you don't die, and then you're immune to the pathogen. And it becomes less and less deadly and more and more contagious. And eventually you reach this point, which we call natural community immunity, where most people have been exposed to some version that was not particularly deadly. And that has given them immunity to all versions, including the very, very deadly early versions. Um, so again, the first year after the release of a novel pathogen is the highest number of deaths that that pathogen will ever cause always goes down from there. And so that means since almost no increase was detected in the over, overall global average of mortality in, in the year of 2020, the, if you go back, again, 50 to 60 million is the average all-cause mortality annually, and that number did not significantly change in 2020. Now, I can qualify this by a couple of things. One is that even if this novel pathogen did cause people to die, um, and I'm sure 
you know, those people definitely were dying from something. Uh, I suspect a lot of this was euthanasia and mistreatment and etc. But let's just again work with the numbers that 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 everybody agrees on in the scientific community, the axioms and um, the stats that we all agree on. And so this is explainable statistically by one particular phenomenon, which is that um, it, it was known very early on because of things like the ships, like there was a, a, a cruise ship and a military ship and whatever. And we, so we, we identified very early on who it was that was at risk from this. And it was people who were over 80 with two and a half or more, more, uh, more comorbidities. And so... That's a pretty limited demographic, first of all. Um, the people in that demographic expect to die this year, statistically, anyway. This is generally the case. Uh, so that means if they get something that makes them die this year from something other than what they would have normally died from this year, they still die this year. They would have died this year. They still died this year. So that creates a situation where they could have died from a novel pathogen and it would not affect the statistics because they were going to die anyway, right? So, but we have this, this other point, which is that the highest number of people die from the pathogen in the first year, and it always goes down from there. And so any increases that we see after the first year cannot be due to the pathogen. So if we start to see an increase, and we are starting to see an increase in global all-cause mortality now, it must be from the interventions and not the pathogen. So these are, these are the kinds of a priori arguments, the logical pure reason arguments that I'm trying to make, because it, mean, it makes it so that I don't have to cite a lot of data. Um, we can just agree on these and points in principle, and people can go and check on, on the data at any given time. You know, these, these are floating points, so you can go and check them at any time. But the, the general argument is just a reasonable argument. So now what we're looking for is the global all-cause mortality to get up to three times what it normally is, or just even to increase for people who don't require that ridiculous level of proof, um, because it shouldn't increase. And there's no reason for it to increase. Even if it was a deadly pathogen that was spreading to everybody, it shouldn't increase because that's not how it works. So so we know that if there's an increase in all-cause mortality, it will not be because of this supposed novel pathogen release. And so therefore it has to be from interventions. And I think the primary inter intervention we're talking about here is the experimental gene therapy, but there are lots of interventions, the masking, the social distancing, all these things, not having enough sunlight, not getting enough vitamins or whatever, There's the hospitals and everything that they've been doing. There's a lot of reasons why people might start dying from these policies that government has forced on everybody. It doesn't have to be simply because of the experimental gene therapy, although that seems to be, as we expected, the primary cause. So, and there's obviously a lot of uh, neurological and, and sci frankly, science fiction madness possibilities with, with what's going on. And I've talked a little bit about it, but it's just easier, again, to fall back on these 
this basic logical argument with some simple numbers. That way we, there's no real argument to have. It's, it's either going to happen or it's not, right? So if it starts to happen, and I think it's starting to happen, uh, we, can, we can tell people about mass recall. And uh, it's my pinned tweet if you're interested in reading. It's a thread, not just a tweet, so read the whole thing. Um, it's an idea, not really a plan, so it's, it's not perfect. A couple of people have pointed out it doesn't really cover all the bases. If that's not at the point of it. The point is to have a, a reasonable idea that everybody can quickly and easily communicate to each other that hasn't been thought of by the global totalitarian corporativist state. And not having all sorts of details about how to do it is helpful because we don't really want to tell everybody exactly how we're going to do it in our town or when. I mean, there is this requirement of it being simultaneous. So when we finally get everybody on board with mass recall, we ought to do this more or less simultaneously. But that's really just because government is, is notorious for executing people. So if if, uh, if this happens in isolated instances and it doesn't happen everywhere and, and the, the government can use its army to go and murder everybody. So we want to avoid that. And if it happens everywhere, they can't do that. So, anyway. We'll, we'll get through this. We will get through this. And, uh, Thank you all for your help. Mm -hmm.